0: Let's take a little time to reveal the prehistoric stories that the earth once concealed. Mix them all together on this ancient land.
1: It's time to spread
0: some paleo jam. Hello, Townsville. Oh, what a wonderful spontaneous cheer that was. Um, my name's Michael Mills. I'm the host of Paleo Jam. We're here for National Science Week on Wulgarukaba Country. I think I've got that right. Um, in 2022, the first fossil body of an Australian long-necked plesiosaur, with the head still attached, was discovered in outback Queensland. With me is Dr. Espen Knutsen, Senior Curator of Paleontology at the Museum of Tropical Queensland and James Cook University. Hello, thank you. And uh, Claire Speedy, Public Programs Officer at the Museum of Tropical Queensland. Thank you. Um, so, um, we're going to talk about this amazing discovery and the context in which it... Oh, people are walking in late. <laughs> Give us a little cheer, man with... <laughs> <laughs> man, it's Father Christmas has joined us. <laughs> so, shouldn't you be busy at the moment doing... No, it doesn't matter. You've got the day off. Thank you. It's all done. Brilliant. Um, so... Uh, This this plesiosaur that was discovered um, recently. Um, Esper tell us about this discovery Um, and and the rock chicks.
1: Yeah, well, I think, firstly, most people probably have no idea what a plesiosaur is, or plesiosaur, if you like, most polite of the saurians. So I've got a model here for the audience, so you guys can see, but I'll try and explain it as well. So if you try and take a sea turtle and take off its shell and then just shove a snake through it, so it kind of looks like that. (laughs)
0: Do not try that at home.
1: (laughs) (laughs) And these were things that were swimming around here in central Queensland and western Queensland around 100 and 110 million years ago when it was covered by an ocean at the time. So obviously if you go out there now you can find the rocks that preserve these things that used to be the old ocean floor and you find plesiosaurs and other reptiles and also the invertebrates that were around as well. So the problem there is that some of these really long-necked things, when they die, they do like whales today. They bloat up and float around for ages and they start decomposing, it's scavenged on. And because there's a tiny little head at the end of a very, very long neck, the head often gets detached from the rest of the body and therefore we find usually either a head, if we're lucky at all, with no body, or we find a body without a head, which is mostly the case.
0: And in fact, South Australian Museum, because I'm based in South Australia, we have... Couple of plesiosaurs,
1: no heads. That's right. That's right. And it's typical also, not just for plesiosaurs or plesiosaurs, but also for any other long-necked animals, so the long-necked sauropods. So if you find the dinosaur as well. The same thing, uh, giraffes as well. If you find them dead, often the head will be gone. So it's not just not just these uh, marine things. So the thing was about uh, what seven, seven, eight months ago now, maybe ten months ago. I got a text message from these landowners out in Western Queensland saying they'd found some found some plesiosaur stuff. So they sent me some pictures, and sure enough, one of the pictures shows a beautiful head just sitting there on the ground, with the neck going still into the into the rock that just just below. So obviously, we want to try and head out there as quick as possible and help them dig this thing out. And these landowners aren't just anyone; they they are a group of ladies two sisters uh, and other family members that go out every year they're out there now probably back again now they were just here earlier in uh in the week to see me they've gone back out and uh and they go and look for these fossils every year on their station and they have found several other things just this year as well i will go out and check out uh in a in a month's time or so uh but we went out and they've already started digging some 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 of this uh, plesiosaur out with a tractor and, and digger they have out there. So they're really keen, obviously. They're not just they're not just uh, finding these things. They're also actually actively digging these things out. Uh, so we went out there, helped them collect uh, the rest of it, and uh, packed it all up, took it back to the museum, and now uh, it's here. And there was a bar, as you, you know, Michael, there's a big media circus around the whole thing because it's obviously a very important specimen, and it's also a very cool way in which it was discovered.
0: Absolutely. And, hmm. and I want wonder...
1: <laughs> not ask
0: Claire about this as somebody who works in public programs when you get something like this that clearly captures the imagination of the public what do you think it is about this discovery that, that the media for a start have gone oh my goodness this is really cool I mean yeah well
2: well I mean first of all I think they think oh it's a swimming dinosaur uh. <laughs> Which we yes. we you know we roll our eyes, <laughs> yes, <laughs> and uh, and try and you know dispel that 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 myth that it's a swimming dinosaur, but I think um, anything prehistoric, um, especially big things, are just captivating for little kids and you know most adults I would say would think that they're not interested in dinosaurs, but you know you never really grow up from from not being interested in dinosaurs and other prehistoric animals, so. The other thing that's really exciting about this particular discovery was that it's it, it's Australian and it, it hit international media and and I think um, if you're a kid and you read dinosaur books, you learn about T. rexes and and brachiosaurs and and, um, and stegosaurus and stuff and. You know, when I go and ask kids, um, when I do activities with kids, and I say, who likes dinosaurs, and they all put their hands up, and I go, can you tell me your favourite dinosaur? And I'm trying to tease out Mataburasaurus or Australovenator. And so so what we're trying to do, and what's really exciting about these uh, discoveries, is that it's Australian, and it's not just dinosaurs.
0: And and one of those things too, and because co- because I work in that space as well in terms of seeking to engage people with the local prehistoric stories. And you, you know, I'll go to schools and I'll say, okay, who can give me the name of an Australian dinosaur? And, and aside from getting T Rex and 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 mm. stuff, there are some really cool places where sometimes you get a Matabarosaurus, You get an Austral event. If you go to Winton and you ask the kids in the high school there, they are well across it. So it's really interesting when you go to particular places. Um, But but so so why is it what why does it matter that we found its head?
1: Well, it does matter because we have a huge amount of bodies of plesiosaurs from around Queensland and the rest of Australia. But we only, for this really uh, long-necked group of plesiosaurs called elasmosaurs, we only have one head, and that doesn't have any body to it. So we don't really know how many species of these things were around because we know from the bodies that at least two different types of bodies. We don't know which one of those bodies go with which with, with that head that's sitting in the collection so now we've got that overlapping material and we can determine now which of these bodies belong to that type of head and if we can go now and say this is one species and this other body has to belong to different species so we can now resurrect resurrect that species name the possibly uh, and then therefore we know that there was at least two of these species around and also interestingly they didn't exist at the same time uh point in time either so it's clearly that there's a change in the ecosystem going from these older rocks that are about five, ten, fifteen million years older than some of these ones from the new discovery, and changing into this new ecosystem.
0: And do you think, Claire, that 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 that's part of the fascination? This, this oh, it's got a head thing. I mean, it sounds quite flippant, but but.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, you know, <laughs> heads are probably the most interesting part of an animal, really. Um, that's why some invertebrates are really boring, you know, <laughs> sea cucumbers and stuff like that. Um, yeah, like, like the heads are really. Uh, it, uh, I guess you can you can
0: empathise. Is that <laughs> if you can so see? So finally, you know, you know. <laughs> this this animal has got a face, I suppose, yeah, in a way. Yeah yeah. yeah, yeah, You can you can use that. that that's fine. <laughs> There's no consulting fee there. Um, so. So it, you 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 go into the field, you, you 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 wrap it in plaster and do all the stuff that you do in the field. You bring it back, so it's in this building somewhere.
1: Yes, Yeah, it's just sitting in. Oh, I'm, uh, I'm here for a few days. Yeah, you know, well, I had, so you know, <laughs> I part of it in my office. <laughs> And uh, other parts are down now in Brisbane. So we're getting an exhibition coming up here starting uh, mid-September called Sea Monsters. So part of the skeleton is now being prepared in Brisbane. It will come back here and go on display for that as well.
0: And that's a really cool thing, isn't it? Because it, it, it's, it's one thing discovering the thing and doing the research on it, but giving the public the opportunity to see the thing that is part of their prehistoric story. Because it is, if you live in Queensland, this is part of your story as a Queenslander. Like, I live, I just I spent a week in Narrowcourt recently, and the really cool thing with Narrowcourt is that the Narrowcourt Caves are in such proximity to the town that the locals are like, yeah, this is this is the story of our place. These are the protodons that walked in herds, walked around where we go to school and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, with the Errimanga Sea, which is the prehistoric inland sea that covered um much of queensland and south australian parts of new south wales so where where did that go to in terms of where we're located here in townsville
1: well you'll see different reconstructions and it's also it wasn't one seaway uh, as such it was oh between a period of 145 million years ago to about 100 million years ago there were several different inundations so the sea sort of came across the land at different points in time at different extents so at its most extensive like you said it went down to new south wales northern south australia and around and perhaps even were connecting the southern and and, and northern australian oceans as well at some point even uh, and it's also possible that where we're sitting now, we're actually part of an island group as well
0: Okay, so so there might have been those dinosaur things here um, We love them <laughs> um, <laughs> <laughs> But uh, sort of you know, we might just go to the coast and then then see these these yeah, these right. And things that's right. Um, we're Really interested in in one of the things that's always fascinating to me when you think of the Aramanga Sea is that if you were to go on a sailing ship Mm. um, and a sailing ship would be better than another ship or a a rowboat, and you were you were or you were you were to snorkel you're you're swimming through an ocean where there are some things that seem familiar so there are fish that you know that that are similar to fish of today there are sharks Mm. but there's the unfamiliar stuff as well that's
1: right. Yeah, well, I mean, we've got some examples of that familiar stuff here as well. So if, I don't know for you guys in the audience, if you can see that's actually a prawn from 120 million years ago. And it looks like someone just peeled it and stuffed it in a, stuffed it in a rock, really, because it looks just like any prawn you'd buy in the shop today whereas it's, you know, obviously 120 million years old. Then, you know, you have these other things. So we've got the Plesiosaurs, we got Ichthyosaurs that are dolphin. They kind of look dolphin, people like to say dolphin-like, but really dolphins are Ichthyosaur-like. Dolphin, I uh, Ichthyosaurs did it well ahead of the dolphins. The only difference is there that being reptiles as well, so this is an interesting thing that I tell the paleo students as well, the reason why... Mammals, uh, marine mammals like cetaceans or whales, move their tail up and down. Is because we, as mammals, don't have lumbar ribs. We've got a free section there because we have a diaphragm for breathing, uh, which makes our movement very different. So if you see like a sea otter or something like that, it'll do this sort of back and forth motion or up and down with its For those with its listening back, at
0: home, with its back, yeah, sort of
1: doing this rocking motion with its hip forwards and backwards. Whereas, whereas a, a reptile. They breathe through coastal ventilation, it's called. so they use the muscles in their ribs and the body movements to move air in and out of, the, out of their bodies. Which means that they have this side-to-side mo- motion with their bodies rather than up and down. And when that translates into an animal evolving into living in water, it means that the tail goes from side to side, which is why you see an ichthyosaurs, they've got a tail fluke just like a shark that goes side to side, whereas in dolphins, this goes up and down as so a horizontal tail fin. So that's pretty cool. You can sort of tell, you know, but depending on where they originated, you can tell why they ended up the way they are because they had limitations already starting from their ancestors.
0: And they're they're, they're a great example, because if you look at a shark, which is a... Fish. Fish yeah. You look at a dolphin, which is a mammal. You look at an ichthyosaur, which mm. is a which is a reptile. You can teach five year old kids about convergent evolution.
1: That's right.
0: And it, it's a, with, with and and, mm. and without going into too much detail, but it's like, well, why is it that shape? Mm. So, so what are some of the things, Claire, with with public programs? What are some of the things that you've learned over the several years you've been doing this? Um, in in Engaging young people, in particular, with prehistoric stories like the stuff we've been talking about.
2: Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, the good thing about about these prehistoric animals is that you've instantly got an attraction. It's like it's the hook, and and it's it's a way of talking about not just prehistoric creatures, but animals, science. You know, it it what what's fantastic is is. You can talk about predator-prey relationships. You know, we used to do this show with the kids where we'd have this big dinosaur puppet, and you'd, you'd, the dinosaur would come out, and I'd go, "It's it's scary because it's a carnivore. How can you tell it's a carnivore? It's got teeth." And then you can talk about about other animals that live in the environment. Um, it, it's you know what's really exciting to kids too is it's sort of uh, talking about paleontology work. It's like a um, a detective story. So that's what's fascinating, I think, too, is is being able to say to the kids, look, this is what we've got. If you had that, what do you think it is? And they go, oh, it's a rock. And you go, uh-huh, ah yeah, it's not just a rock. So they're really fascinated by that idea of, of, of evidence. And then you use this evidence, scientists use this evidence to build up a story, which actually sometimes changes because you get new evidence. And, and that's science. So um, what I've learned is that Gosh, use dinosaurs all the time to- and other prehistoric creatures as a, as a segue into talking about science and other animals and also um, major issues, wicked problems,
0: climate change, and stuff like that. Yeah, and, and we use, like with Dinosaur University, we, we've got a catchphrase come for the dinosaurs, stay for the science. Mm-hmm. I mean, dinosaurs are still science, but dinosaurs are kind of the, 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 the poster child. Um, it's like come and see these dinosaurs by the way here's some ediacra biota while you're here Mm. which Um, is just as cool absolutely yes yes even though they're invertebrates (laughs) (laughs) um so so i want to go back in time a little bit um espen were you the dinosaur
1: kid growing up did you watch jurassic park and go yeah i want to do that Uh, I did watch Jurassic Park, and I did watch Land Before Time as well. I remember going to the cinema with my... Did you cry in Land Before Time? No, I didn't know how to. Heartless! (laughs) 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 So, but obviously where I grew up, there was no rocks with fossils in them at all. There was all uh, igneous rocks, so rocks that formed from the magmas inside the earth, and no fossils at all, so we'd collect crystals and minerals and that sort of thing i think the first fossil i ever saw i was was when i was at uni
0: okay so Hmm. so you you came from it initially like from a geological perspective
1: yeah well i always collected i had a butterfly collection and all sorts of things and we always were out catching snakes and lizards and amphibians and all sorts of things so was kind of a bit interested in everything so your house
0: (laughs) you lived in the house of the dead
1: exactly yeah (laughs) yeah yeah, we used to have. I had this uh, science teacher living next door, and he taught me how to uh, capture insects and how you how to how you euthanize them, I suppose, <laughs> and actually pin them to pin them to and, and and display them and all that sort of stuff. And uh, yeah, he was a, a big influence when I grew up.
0: And which is interesting, isn't it, Claire? That that whole thing of. of people having um uh, an inspiration and an influence and stuff so how do you how do you work that space given the job that you do
2: um oh gosh just yeah you just as i said before you just use that that passion that interest in in things that are not us and and then go from there
0: Yeah, yep yeah. all right um What else have you got on the table here, Aspen? So there's a prawn that's like you could have picked it up off the beach, but it's obviously fossilised. Yes. There's what looks to be a piece of vertebrae.
1: That is a piece of vertebrae. See, look, I do know. I do know things. You don't need me here at all. (laughs) The
0: audience are all nodding sagely.
1: (laughs) So this is, yeah, for those that are just listening, this is a spool-shaped thing that's about 15 uh, centimetres in diameter. And what it is, it's a one neck vertebra from one of these elastomosaurid plesiosaurs that we had here in Queensland 100 million years ago. So if you imagine, see how big this is, so it's about 15 centimetres long or so, and it had about 55 of these in the neck. So that just gives you some idea of the length of the neck. So this is from an animal that was somewhere around 10 metres long, and about two thirds of that was the neck. And the head at the other end would have been about 30, 35 centimetres long. So it's not a very big head for a 10 metre long animal. So obviously we don't really know exactly what these things were eating. We can look at the teeth and have some suspicions about whether they were eating fish or squid-like animals. Uh, Sometimes, when you're lucky, you can get stomach content preserved and you can see things from squid-like hooklets in what we call bellum They have little hooks on their arms. Uh, so you can see things like that, or you can see fish scales and fish bones sometimes as well. But other than that, we have uh, not much of an idea exactly what these species were eating. But you'd be quite vulnerable,
0: wouldn't you? Like with that big long neck for a Cronus or, or an ichthyosaur to just come yeah. along and chomp the neck.
1: Yeah, and, and you'll, uh, there was a study published only a couple of weeks ago, I think. So there's another group of marine reptiles that lived long before these things called Tanistrophids in the Triassic period. And these were much smaller animals but had really, really long necks, and they found recently two necks with heads but no bodies and bite marks on the end of, of the neck where it was missing the body. So it's pretty clear that a bigger animal that was matched to possibly a bigger reptile that lived in that ocean had been just chomping their necks off and then just eat the body and leave the head bit that has hardly a head head and neck bit that's just a skinny little thing.
0: That um, <laughs> that just reminds me of um killer whales that are or orcas which are horrible creatures you should know this <laughs> um where off the coast of south africa there was a group of i think there was a place where a whole bunch of i think it was great white sharks lived mm-hmm. and the there was two orcas only two of them they've learned to flip the sharks take out their liver and leave them to die <laughs> And that's why they just go, oh, I love that liver, thanks. Mm. Yeah, and they don't eat the rest of it. I mean, obviously the rest of it gets eaten, in, in, but, but they've d- d- destroyed the, the ecosystem in this. Society. It's not just mm. humans.
1: Yeah. Orcas do it too. <laughs> and you'll see with big whales as well, when they kill those, they'll typically just eat the tongue and just leave the rest. It's like, yeah. <laughs> but it's interesting that you mentioned orcas because you see in some nature documentaries, you'll see they'll grab the fins of the whale and try and drag it down to drown it. And interestingly, in England, we have uh, flippers, paddle bones, from these uh, long-necked plesiosaurs from the Jurassic period, where we also had things like Kronosaurus, which is one of these giant, short-necked, big-headed plesiosaurs. We've got bite marks on the flippers of these long-necked ones that fit just to the teeth of these uh, big pliosaurs that were around at that time. So they clearly were doing the same thing, biting the flippers. And then you know, making them immobilise them essentially, and then and then just finish them off. And and mm. some of the
0: things that you find out in in paleo, the the pathologies are really fascinating, aren't they? So you're not just finding the animal and what it looked like; you're actually finding something that's happened to it. You're finding a story within the animal. I remember being in in Richmond Cronosaurus Corner, and there's a couple of specimens there where it's there's there's bite marks and there's yeah. disease and stuff. Mm. Um, Colours. Now, we've worked out through melanosomes the colour of some dinosaurs, yeah. um, like sinusoreptrics. With plesiosaurs and ichthyosaurs, where you see models of them in, in museums, they generally go with the the, the, the dark at the top, the light at the, the bottom thing. Is. Yes, that's right. Um, which is what penguins have. Mm. Penguins are the only verified swimming dinosaur that we know of. <laughs> um no no it's true audience it's <laughs> it's like birds are dinosaurs penguins are birds they do have knees but they're inside that i'm stopping talking about penguins now <laughs> um but and what's really interesting with penguins i didn't stop um is the front of them is white and the back of them is black and that's because of, of swimming and so if you're underneath you're looking up to the sun you're over over it you're looking down it is have we other than other than Thinking to ourselves, well, that's probably what they were like because great mm. whites and, and orcas are the same kind of thing. Do we have any sense of coloration for any of these?
1: Well, a lot of it is, like you say, I suppose, conservative guesstimation on an educated guess based on what it typically see, so we can make some generalizations. There was a uh, nichthyosaur described from uh, Germany only a few years ago that had preserved blubber as well, or suggested preserved blubber, which obviously indicates that they were producing their own body heat and were trying to isolate themselves from the environment. So that's one thing, but they also did find colour pigmentation in that one as well, which indicated uh, countershading. So, but just just like in modern marine uh, mammals as well, just because one is countershaded doesn't mean that they're all going to be countershaded. Yep,
0: mm. yep. Um- mm biggest ichthyosaur that's
1: ever lived yeah we well have the group uh which lived in the triassic and they grew to maybe around 21 or 22 meters of thereabouts which
0: yeah. and so if that's in the triassic yes. so they've then got more than 100 million years to to get bigger mm. one of the things i often talk about with kids is when when and you ask them what's the biggest animal that's ever lived and they're like oh it's a blue whale it's like, oh. mm. the biggest animal that's ever lived that we know of so far is probably more accurate. Could ichthyosaurs get as big as blue whales?
1: Uh, well, it's no hard, pressure. It's hard <laughs> to say, but it's funny you should mention that. There was only a, uh, last week uh, another whale, Cenozoic whale, described that they suggested were larger than... Yeah, <laughs> larger yeah but than, they yeah. a tiny little head on it. <laughs> yeah, a tiny little head. Yeah, I guess it wasn't that impressive in, in some ways. I guess it was a tooth whale as well, and a, not a baleen whale. But yeah, we did have some really big ichthyosaurs, so... The funny thing with ichthyosaurs is we don't really know exactly when they started and where they came from. We know they came from land linear ancestors, we don't know exactly what group. Uh, and when they first appear in the early Triassic period, right at the earliest you know, onset of the Triassic period, right after the end permanent extinction that killed off 90 to 95% of all life, they're already fully looking like ichthyosaurs. And some of them are pretty big as well, like close to 10, 8 to 10 meters long. So they're clearly not something that's you know recently crawled uh, from land and into the water. Uh, and through, uh, throughout the Jurassic period, you see a massive diversity in body shapes and, and ecologies. You see anything from half a meter long ichthyosaurs to the big yeah, 20 odd meter Shonosaurids. But then at the end of the Triassic, we have a bigger mass extinction event, and a lot of these things go extinct. And they're sort of all from there on on adopt this general tuna shape or dolphin shaped kind of uh, body plan rather than these very much variety of body plans they had in the Triassic.
0: Yep. Mm. I want to talk about, we've, we've got about four minutes, five minutes left to go, um, I want to talk about change and what's changed. We'll come to the fossil record and what we know and what's changed and understand what understand what, what, what's changed there. But Claire, I want to ask you, What have you seen a change? We, we've talked a little bit about people knowing our own prehistoric stories in, here in Australia. Have you have you seen any changes over the years in terms of how we're engaging with that stuff? Um, are we better at it now? Is it still the same as it was?
2: Ah, uh, yeah. I mean, I think I think we are we are better at communicating, and we're we're better at, at, about that sort of stuff. But I think we're also better at, at making those linkages that we talked about before. Um, um, make using these this interest in these animals as a way to to talk about other things you know like changes in climate and stuff like that i mean that's a big the elephant in the room and um and and that's one of the you know in when i was young i thought you know what's the point of paleontology you know like you know do we really need to what (laughs) (laughs) do it but you know but now we can look at we can look at changes in climate and see how that's massive things have affected you know wiped out species you know we're looking going towards the Anthropocene or in the Anthropocene when we're having a huge impact. So I think um, I think that's what's changed, is it's become it's become um, more linked to some of those really big issues.
0: Yeah, and in fact, the, the very first episode we did of Paleo Jam at Flinders Uni about a year ago during Science Week last year was, what's the point of paleontology? And we all came out saying, yeah, there's a lot of point to it. And part of it is that. Part of it is engaging communities with science and people because... Because the, the the two cool sciences are paleontology and astronomy. <laughs> no, I mean, they are, and, and I often say to people, paleontology. If you mix all the sciences together, hmm. like geology, biology, physics, chemistry, maths, what have you got? Paleontology.
1: That's
0: right. Yeah, the audience. Hmm. There's no. There's no <laughs> laughing there. They're all just <laughs> nodding wisely. Yes. <laughs> yes, Michael. Um, so, Espen, in the last few minutes that we've got left, hmm. what what's what's changed? In, I remember sp- speaking with, with Scotty Hocknell from Queensland Museum years ago, the South mm. Australian Museum, during Paleontology Week, and he said when he was a kid, if you wanted to be a paleontologist, you had to leave Australia.
1: Yeah, well, I don't think that's the case. I mean, I've come to Australia. You've come to Australia, <laughs> yes. haven't you? So, from, so, the so, other, from the other side of the planet. From the other places, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So mm. what,
0: what's, what's changed in, in the paleo space that you can see in Australia?
1: Well, I guess uh, it's a bit hard for me to say because I've only been here for 12 years. But uh, I think the way paleontology is done now, there's a lot more uh, holistic view of things rather than just describing and discovering new species and what they looked like and how their morphology might have functioned. But we can also look at things like the chemistry of the teeth to deduce what sort of diet they had, whether they were migrating, whether they were warm or cold blooded, and a lot of other things as well. and, and we also know we, the advent of 3D modelling, high technology, 3D modelling and CT scanning into details of, of tiny little animals even as well. And we can model those uh, mechanically in engineering software to figure out well, how the forces worked and, and see things that we couldn't see before. We get a much bigger perspective of, of, of the ecosystems of, of the past. But also combining that with what we know from, or geology can teach us, looking at the rocks that these things are found in and get a much more holistic view of ecosystems and how they've changed over time.
0: And part of that too then is is giving the public access to that stuff. So Flinders Uni and a few other unis have created this thing called VAMP, the Virtual Australian Museum of Paleontology. And you can go onto the site and you can have a look at a whole bunch of fossil models in 3D. And, and ultimately I think science ought to be in the hands of the public you know, they ought to be having access to that, that information because they've very readily got access to misinformation, don't they? And, and I think the great thing is that we've run yeah. out of time. See how I smoothly segued that? <laughs> Can we please thank Espen and um, Claire? <laughs> thank you, Townsville. Thank you, Natural Science Week. Thank you. It's time to spread some paleo jam